Welcome to Desert Island Risks, the podcast where we talk to industry leaders and hear about the risks and rewards behind their success. Today we meet Ian Marcus, many people's answer to the question, who is the best connected person in real estate? One of our sources, I won't say who, described Ian as the kind of person who'll be invited to three different parties in a single night, all black tie events, and he'll go to each one of them. The extensive real estate network Ian has created has, more importantly, led him to be invited to sit on many advisory boards, including the Crown Estate, the BPF, Eastill Secured, the Bank of England, to name but a few. Ian has substance as well as black tie style, having worked for some of the biggest banking names in the industry. These include Bank of America, NatWest, UBS and Credit Suisse, where Ian was chairman and head of real estate in Europe. Anyone who knows Ian has probably heard about his passion for sport. As we'll find out later, he plays rugby, football and golf with varying degrees of skill. If he's not in black tie, you'll most likely find him either at a Saracens match or a football game. It's always difficult to sum up a person's character in a few seconds. However, Edward Ziff, chairman and chief executive of the property investment and development company, Town Centre Securities, attempted to introduce him to us in just three words. Three words. Um, Hell of a nice guy. Hell of a nice guy. That's five words. Um, very, a very loyal friend. Very loyal friend. That's three. Very loyal friend. That's two goes. Do you want me to have another go? Complete pain in the arse. Complete pain in the arse. That's five again. <laughs> they do say your friends know you best. But joking aside, when speaking to Ian's colleagues, clients and friends, the first three or five words that came to mind always reflected Ian's infamous ability to bring the right people together creating conversations and making them feel heard, valued and well-advised. Today, we turn the tables on him to hear about the risks, rewards and lessons learned through his career. Ian Marcus, welcome to Desert Island Risks. Thank you, Emily. Uh, I was going to say it's a pleasure to be here till I heard Edward's words. I'll get my own back in a moment. <laughs> Revenge is a dish best served cold. Let's, uh, let's see what else he has to say before you make up your mind. Your whole career has been founded on relationships, so it's only right that we kick things off with a soundbite on this very subject. Let's have a listen to Edward Ziff again, who shared his views on Ian's approach to relationship building. He talks to a lot of people. When he, he, if you could do an average word count on, on how much Ian either listens to or says during the course of the day, it must, it must beat everybody hands down. I mean, I don't think in all the years I've known him, I don't think I've ever got through to him first time because he is always talking to people and he's always got meetings and he, he's, he's got, you know, every hour that God sends. I mean, it's a good job. It's a global business that he's, he's involved with because if I started telling people I had was having meetings at the time, some of the times in the day that he says, I mean, I'd, I'd have to be telling a few pork pies, frankly, because I don't know how he finds people to talk to at the, some of the time. It's a good job. It's a global business. When do you find the time to sleep? You do work a lot. I do. But of course, the the answer is the lines become very blurred between business and pleasure um, and clients and friends and particularly someone like Edward that I've known for 30 years. So I take his comments with a pinch of salt. 
His opening comment actually just reflects the challenges, though, because uh, I am a non-executive director on his company. And I said to him when he asked me to join, I said, just be careful what you wish for. And you have to be very careful. You recognise there is a difference between being a friend and the fiduciary duty you have as an advisor. So I think I'm a hell of a nice guy when I'm his friend and I'm a pain in the ass, quote unquote, when I'm a non-executive director reminding him of his responsibilities. So yes, of course it's busy. I've just got to be careful I'm not a busy fool. Um, some would say you don't need to go to that drinks uh, party, you don't need to attend that dinner, you don't need to go to that meeting, and most of those comments come from Mrs Marcus and my children, surprisingly. Um, but as I say, it's all about the fact that I have such great joy of doing what I'm doing, which means uh, I don't consider it a burden. Real estate is an industry full of people, people. What do you need to do to stand out? Difficult to say, but I always emphasise to uh, uh, those coming into the industry, and in fact I'm speaking to all the East Hill analysts who joined a few days ago, just this afternoon, it's one of the things I'll reiterate. Everyone thinks our industry is about real estate and buildings, and yes, of course it is, and people will quote to you, location, location, location. And then I will emphasise to them about the importance of timing and the cyclicality of the industry. Uh, as to when you buy or sell or finance something. But the third one is the most important thing. It is a people industry. And if you get the decision right as to who you lend to, who you invest in, who you advise, who you partner with, you won't necessarily avoid all the trials and tribulations that comes from a cyclical business. But you will at least stand a better chance of working their way through. So the people element and having that skill set is vital. One of the things that I think the... Uh, the health crisis has brought out more than anything is we're an industry full of very talented people, great deal doers with strong IQ. But I'm afraid as an industry, we have a, a distinct lack of people who also are strong on EQ, which of course is so necessary at these challenging times. This serial commitment to engaging with and listening to others has left a strong impact on those that we spoke to and in the wider industry. Nick Leslau, Chairman and Chief Executive of Presbury Investment Holdings, shared some thoughtful insight on this very topic. I've learned from Ian, from watching him and seeing him, his ability to charm people, but genuinely charm them as opposed to some pretense. He's very good at making people feel good about themselves. He's developed you know, the Ian Marcus little black book of contacts must be the very best in our entire industry. And I don't think that's come about through some cynical plan to do that. I think he's just done it because he's very friendly He's and, and because he's friendly and very trustworthy and has great integrity and high moral standards, people trust him. And as they trust him, you know, he builds those connections. And that's why he's immensely popular because he's very capable and he's also very likeable, and those two things don't always go hand in hand. How do you build trust in this in this industry? I think it's quite interesting. You and I have reflected on the previous participants in this podcast, who are all people who've built in built their own businesses, been hugely successful. However, you want to measure that, and I think I'm the first service provider that you've uh, you've uh, asked to uh, participate. Which thank you. Hmm. Um, I was told many years ago by someone else who uh, you would have a lot of fun interviewing, which is Paul White of Frogmore. And Paul said, 
It takes 30 years to build a reputation and 30 seconds to lose it. So there's nothing I um, protect more than and recognise the role and responsibility that I have. And as, as Nick says, um, when you're engaging with people and you're talking about transactions and you're talking about their strategy and you're talking about their personal aims and aspirations, you want to give best advice. Uh, and that's why and that's where I've always tried to position myself as a trusted advisor. But you must protect that as well. Um, going back to Edward, he will always say, you can tell Ian anything because... and that that's all you can uh, expect as an advisor you can only offer uh, what's between your ears uh, this is an industry which with all due respect isn't brain surgery and therefore there are many people that can uh, conclude the business and get involved in the business but that that trust and that positioning with people is so vital i'll tell you a little story which may help that a little bit more uh, the late, great Ian Cool, who was chief exec of, of Seagrow, sadly missed a, a great friend uh, and, uh, and equal, equally uh, engaged in rugby as well. We, we got on fabulously well. Um, said to me once, there's three reasons why I appoint someone to do a job or I buy a service. He said, one, because you're the cheapest. It's the little versus Waitrose argument. A tin of baked beans is a tin of baked beans. And even in our industry, we have some commodity product and therefore whoever has the sharpest pencil will win. Second is the other extreme, which is you have solved a problem for me. You have uniquely found a solution, and therefore I'm price inelastic as to what happens, uh, uh, and you're just going to help me do something. He said, but the third is equally important. I appoint someone because I like them. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, look, there are many people that in our industry could sell a building, um, launch an IPO, manage an M&A trade. I'm going to spend a lot of my waking hours with that person. Why shouldn't I choose someone, everything else being equal, that I enjoy spending time with? And that's very important, and I've always tried to ensure that uh, that's the sort of relationship I can build. You have to adapt. We, we as service providers are chameleons. It's not for us to dictate the pace or the nature of the, uh, the dialogue. If someone wants to sit down and tell me about their family holiday or which film they've seen this weekend or you know what their what their plans are, etc., that's fine, I'll engage with them. If they just want to get down to the nitty-gritty and know the answer to the question, that's fine. It's my role to adapt to what the client wants. On this topic of trust, it's it's evident that you don't just put in the time. You're not only talking to lots of people, it's also about the quality of the conversation. Let's hear from Stephen Cohen, who perhaps says it best. Stephen is the Chief Strategy Officer of AEG, the US headquartered sports and entertainment business responsible for the creation of the O2 Arena. I have the good fortune of knowing Ian's family and he knows all about mine. But my, my oldest daughter, who uh, is a complete brainiac, was heading over to the Netherlands to check out a potential graduate school program and was stopping in the UK on the way. And she's generally the smartest person in any given room and is high functioning, but she's also bipolar and she's very upfront about that. Her name is Hannah and Hannah was stopping in the UK to visit some friends on her way to check out this graduate program and, and upon landing realized that she did not bring one of her very important and necessary medicines for her to 
to be able to function in the day-to-day. And so we madly scrambled to figure out how to get this medicine tour highly restricted in the UK and in Europe on the mainland where she was going next. So we couldn't just send a tour even if we wanted to. And it happened to be I was on the phone with Ian, who was preparing to go to to a black tie affair, of all things. And the minute I said even the briefest of sentences about this, Ian was all over it. It was now a problem for Ian to solve. How was he going to meet up with Hannah? How was he going to connect Hannah and Hannah's doctor with his doctor and arrange for an appointment on a Saturday morning and meet Hannah at the train station, get her to the doctor, get her back to the train? I didn't ask for anything. It was just that scintilla of a hint of what I was contending with that Ian immediately, as another member of my family, was going to take care of it. And not only to take care of it, but to do it with, with joy. It wasn't a burden or a, oh, I, I have to get this done for Steve. It was, uh, I get to meet your daughter. It was what we would look at as an inconvenience or a, an alteration even. For him, it was instantly into problem-solving mode. And within 24 hours, despite going to his black tie event, and he did make all the sporting events. He spent time with my daughter. My daughter met with his doctor. It was, again, it wasn't a surprise because it was Ian. It was Ian being Ian. And go back to, again, in a professional setting, that's where the O2 started. It wasn't, I'm just being a banker. Maybe we could find some financing for you. He was a partner in the problem and therefore a partner in the solution. A partner in the problem and therefore a partner in the solution. I don't think you can get a a better quote to summarise a good advisor. Well, I remember that incident well. And and I'm sure most of the listeners of this podcast, if if you had a friend who was in need, would do the right thing. And therefore, I I didn't give it a second thought. You do what you can to help people, don't you? Um, And, you know, when I first met Steve, when when, uh, he and Phil Anschutz came over and started looking at this white elephant called the the Millennium Dome and seeing what they could do. It was just intriguing. It was a great problem-solving exercise. And in fact, I've had the pleasure of not just financing it, but refinancing it a couple of times and now working with Steve and his team on a a global basis. And again, they're good people. I mean, it's it's a good example to me, though, of what you put in, you get back and vice versa. Um, everyone always mocks me for the number of roles I have and the amount of time I have and, you know, you've got 12 jobs, one for each day of the week sort of comment. But there is a consistency and uh, you've spoken to some of my friends and colleagues and I, I fear there's more to come. But there are three things that are consistent with all the jobs I do and I wish I'd come up with this sort of thought process about 40 years ago. It might have helped. But uh, they all have... Um, three uh, boxes I can tick. And if they don't, then I won't. Um, the first is they're all intellectually challenging and stimulating. You've spoken to these people. These are people with really interesting roles, responsibilities, organisations. So I'm learning every day, and that's important. The second thing is they're all with people I like and trust. I've known Edward for 30 years. I've known Nick for equally long Steve, probably about 20 years, and some other names. There's one exception to that rule I think we might touch on a bit later, which is Eastill, and we'll talk about that as a specific. And the third uh, box I need to tick is, is it fun? You know, having done this for nearly 40 years, 
Uh, I have no problem getting out of bed early and working hard, but you hope you're going to have some enjoyment along the way. Well, look, picking up on that fun piece, um, it seems like you discover the most interesting thing about everyone you engage with. We spoke to Liz Peace, the former chief executive of the British Property Federation. When I retired, I did actually run my own little Oscars and I gave Oscars to all my uh, past presidents. And Ian Marcus received the Oscar for being the best attendee because he would turn out at every BPF event and look as if he was really enjoying it, even if it was something as obscure as a seminar on planning reform. I should perhaps just mention also, for reasons which I now can't remember, he was known as Maverick in the office, and that got shortened to Mav. Similarities between Ian and Tom Cruise, um, I will leave the audience to envisage that. Maybe Liz can't remember where the nickname Maverick came from, but we've come up with a plausible theory. Having heard from Alison Nimmo, the former chief executive of the Crown Estate, I think you two started work on the same day at the Crown. We spoke to her uh, and she gave us some insights on your approach to sport. By all accounts, I mean, he was a very talented rugby player in his youth. Uh, and I think there's a lot of parallels between sport and uh, business. Uh, but when he came to London for his first job, he started playing five-a-side football. And my, my partner, Chris, tells me that Ian played football like a prop forward. And he's very, very competitive. <laughs> uh, and this resulted in a lot of collateral, collateral damage. How did your rugby career influence your approach to business? Well, um, firstly, uh, my answer to, to Alison's comment is if you're going to play, you're going to play to win. And I don't care whether that's on the sports field or the boardroom. So uh, I won't break the rules, but I'll certainly bend them to achieve my objectives. Um, sports had a huge influence on uh, on my life in all sorts of different and uh, different ways. You know, I was mad, mad, mad footballer uh, and not bad as a, as a kid and was hoping that, you know, like all 10, 11-year-olds, that's where the future would take me. And I remember my father coming in one day saying, we're moving home, and we were leaving Bournemouth, where I'd been brought up to move to Westcliff in Essex. And he said, and by the way, the school you're going to is a rugby school. And I just was heartbroken. I was ready to do the sort of uh, leave home in a fit of peak, and turned up at, uh, at uh, my new uh, school, uh, Westcliff High School for Boys, with this funny egg-shaped ball that, uh, and you think, well, you know, give it a go. And by coincidence, and I know I'm speaking to a rugby fan on the other end of this microphone here, that week, so this is 1970, remember, um, I saw the great Welsh team play, and I saw this fella called Gareth Edwards, who I thought was quite talented. Uh, in my opinion, still the greatest rugby player ever. And I went to school and said, please, sir, can I play scrum half? And I ended up playing uh, at Scrum Half throughout my school career, um, did, a, did a number of things on the representative front, captain school, and uh, some will jest that that's what helped me get to Cambridge. Um, there was a joke about Fitzwilliam College in those days, uh, uh, far different nowadays, that if you, uh, if you went for an interview, they threw you a ball. If you caught it, you were in, caught it and passed it back. That was an exhibition and if you managed to drop kick it into the waste paper bin, that was an open scholarship. And the first person I met when I turned up at Cambridge, I literally turned a corner and bumped into, which is something you don't forget, was a gentleman called Eddie Butler, who went on to Captain Wales, the BBC uh, commentator. 
And Eddie was a, a great mentor to me on the rugby field, as was another gentleman at that college at the time called Alistair Hignall, who at the time was the England fullback. And the coach of Cambridge was Ian Robertson, the Scottish international, again, very well-known uh, BBC commentator. And they probably wouldn't remember me from those times, but I remember the three of them having a big influence on how I played my rugby. And it was uh, uh, Higgy's dis you know, recommendation I switched to be playing fullback rather than scrum half as he'd done and was lucky enough afterwards to go on and uh, and play representative rugby up in the Midlands for, for Warwickshire and then come down and, and play for Saracens and, and continue on. The the crossover to me is 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 a bit naive but uh, fairly straightforward. Um, I was lucky enough to captain a lot of the teams I played in, both rugby, football and cricket. Uh, you didn't put that on your list. And I love team sports. And why? Because it's all about getting the best. The sum of the parts is greater than the whole. And to my mind, when you're in the office, it's not vastly different. There may not be the smell of uh, liniment and deep heat and lots of bandages around. And maybe some of the language is a little different. But actually, as a leader on the pitch, it's no... no uh, no different from what you do uh, in the boardroom. How do you get the best out of your team? Well, there are, there are three different motivations. There are some players on your team that need a metaphorical arm put round them. They need encouraging and cajoling. There are others, to put it bluntly, need a kick up the backside. They've got all the talent but need pushing in the right direction. And then every team has its maverick. Uh, it can be, depending on what area you're from, the, the Paul Gascoynes or... Uh, of similar ilk um, who are just brilliant and what you've got to do is just create the box for them to do what they do and there are many people I work with today without mentioning names I would put into that bracket and your job is to just give them the landscape in which to excel without making sure they don't blow up the uh, the whole operation. Our podcast is called Desert Island Risks and so we should certainly touch upon a risk you took when playing rugby and for that, let's hear from Simon Cook, founder of APAM and also a lifelong rugby player. Here he is talking about a maverick moment. But I have got a little story about something which happened in 2009 uh, on the rugby field. Ian has supported me in a charitable match in South Africa where we've put together the Peter Winterbottom 15 to play against the Pirates Rugby Football Club, the 1984 champions. And so it was 50-year-olds versus 50-year-olds on the uh, on the high veld in Johannesburg. And of course, it took on a much more serious nature once we got there than it should have done. And w one of the things I would say about Ian is that even though he is a quiet, calm and amiable and generous individual, he's also incredibly brave. And we kicked off. The ball uh, was knocked on typically by one of us. Uh, there was a scrum and an enormous number eight came running at the mid up the middle of the pitch. And everyone was looking, thinking, what do we do? And of course, Ian bravely threw himself into the tackle, knocked the chap over, the ball came out, uh, we ran it down the wing, and of course, we scored under the post. And everyone was jumping up and down. Poor old Ian was lying flat on the floor. Uh, it was He said it was the first tackle he'd made for 30 years. Do you remember that moment? Or was I, there a concussion? Uh, no, no, I do. And the shoulder surgery six months later put everything back in one piece. So, no, listen, it was, a, it was a really wonderful experience with Cookie putting that uh, tour together. This was all to celebrate his 60th birthday and it just turned into something much bigger and greater. 
And what he forgets to tell you is he himself took a bang on the ribs and I remember us all mocking him going, yeah, stop being such a, a wimp. And uh, we flew home after the third uh, British Lions test and I rang him on the Monday to thank him for the most wonderful experience. Uh, and my son, who was then 18, came as well and the way they included him was just fantastic. Um, and uh, Cookie said, that was an absolute pleasure. I said, how are the ribs? He said, I went to the doctor today. It seems I've got two broken ribs and a punctured lung. And he flew home with that. So, you know, um, you can call us brave or you can call us both stupid. But, uh, yes, his comment about tackling is probably true because um, uh, Jason Leonard, uh, who is also a great friend, I'm involved in his charity, said to me that uh, COVID is made for me because I was always a socially distant fullback when it came to defending. So... Uh, we shall see. No, rugby has been great. The camaraderie of people like Simon and, and many others uh, has has weaved an interesting path through real estate because, of course, there are many uh, sportsmen uh, in our field. Uh, and it's just been an absolute pleasure. Unfortunately, now the body is telling me it's time to watch rather than play, although I am absolutely petrified that in about April, May next year, the phone is going to ring from Simon, who says... It's 12 years on. We're going back to South Africa. Are you up for it? And the ridiculous thing is I will probably say yes if he does. I'd put money on it. Um, you took a risk there where many others wouldn't. And you've also done the same in, in business with people. Mark Gilbard, the founder of Moorfield, was one of the lucky beneficiaries of this. Let's hear from Mark now. To add a story to that which I think is probably worth telling, is that I had a decision to make in 1995-6 where I was at Goldman Sachs um, and my career was going very well and I decided there was an opportunity to leave Goldman and set up my own business. And so I sat down and had a long chat with Ian about this. And, uh, you know, we, we, we joked about the fact that, you know, were I to leave Goldman and to join a small business that, that uh, or even effectively set up my own business is what it was, that I could lose some close friends and in inverted commas overnight when I no longer carried the badge of a of a big firm like a gold or a county bank or a UBS. Uh, and indeed, of course, that did happen. You know, the phone stops ringing uh, almost as soon as uh, people are aware that that's what you're doing. And Ian said to me at that time, you know, I, I will stand behind you in this. You know, I'll, I'll, I will make sure that I'm not one of the people that stops ringing you and that we'll continue to work together and I'll try and assist you where I can in making Moorfield a success. And that was very important to me. It was very important to me from a friendship perspective. It was also very important to me because I knew that Ian knew a lot of people and that the, they had very high regard for him. And if he spent the time telling them that I was worth spending time with, even though I was no longer at Goldman Sachs, you know, I believed that they would listen. Do you realise the difference you made there? No, I hadn't. I mean, those are conversations that you have. I remember Mark joining me when I worked for UBS Phillips and Drew in the 80s as a young surveyor. Um, we all thought we were going to securitise all of real estate and we wanted someone who understood bricks and mortar. And the world changed very rapidly and we worked out that Mark was possibly one of the worst equity analysts you could imagine, but without question, one of the best equity salesmen you'd ever want to, uh, to have on your side. And, uh, and so Mark sort of changed his role. We worked together then. He went off to NatWest. And he, yeah, there's always two sides to this coin. He phoned me after being there a year saying, this organisation has all the parts of the jigsaw. It needs someone to pull it together. Yeah, and I think you're the guy. And there was this was a time when Mark was then the number one equity analyst and his team at uh, 
at NatWest. Richard Mully and uh, many other well-known names were uh, putting together very innovative forms of financing. Uh, NatWest were the biggest lender, and I joined on Mark's initial thoughts and, and put that together, and that was seven, eight years. And when Mark left, yes, absolutely, and uh, he went through some bumps in the road with uh, Moorfield as it originally was, and then we came back together... Um, late 90s, early 2000s, and when I was at Credit Suisse was uh, uh, greatly humbled to get the mandate to raise the Moorfield's first equity fund, and we've remained close friends ever since. You know, he's been to my children's weddings. I'm hoping to go to his daughter's wedding, which has, of course, been postponed, uh, but hopefully we'll all be celebrating soon, and uh, that's what friendships are about. So Mark remembers that. I remember the other side of that coin when he helped me. You're known as a people person, but you've also taken risks on on the market. Simon Cook from APAM told us about a time when you had to take a pretty big risk on the real estate market. Let's have a listen. In business, I think the biggest risk and the biggest influence perhaps he's had globally on the industry is in taking up the challenge and pushing through the REIT agenda in 2006 You've got to remember at the time, there was an enormous amount of concern about the validity of REITs. And most importantly, we were at the end of a bull run in in real estate and we were beginning to feel nervousness about launching a REIT product into the UK marketplace, which might immediately get hurt. And, And his passion and drive to saying, no, this is absolutely essential. This is where the rest of the world is going. And this is what the British market needs, was you know, leadership of the highest order, incredibly brave in the face of a lot of criticism at the time, including myself. I took him aside and said, are you really sure we should be doing this? But if he hadn't done that, we wouldn't have had such a successful REIT marketplace for the last 15 years or so. Well, I don't know whether it was brave. I just thought it was the necessary direction. I'd been very lucky when I was at NatWest. NatWest had a very strong US franchise, particularly in healthcare REITs. And I saw firsthand uh, when they introduced REITs in 93. And I worked on a number of deals through through the 90s uh, at NatWest, which really helped me understand the benefits of uh, of the democratization of real estate, which essentially what the idea behind REITs was. And in fact, at NatWest, we worked on the very first UK company to spin out US assets in a REIT, which was Capital and Regionals, uh, uh, industrial assets, and the first US REIT to invest in the UK, which was a healthcare REIT. And I learned a lot from that. And we'd had many a battle with Treasury and, and others on the benefits of and the reasons for. And again, um, I will, I'll emphasise the necessity for team And the art of good uh, leadership is hire people brighter than you and identify your successor. And thank you, Simon, for your compliment. But I was one of what became known as the Gang of Six. And you've had Liz already. Liz was very important to that at the time for obvious reasons. John Galatly, who's now an addict, and John and I worked together at Credit Suisse, wrote the white paper, which went to the Treasury, which I still say was the foundation of those conversations. Um, Nick Ripblatt, Stuart Beaver... Uh, one or two others were actively involved. So it was by no means, you know, Ian out there, out front and on his own. Um, it was an industry-wide effort. And it was actually the first time that I remember the industry actually pulling together all its resources and speaking as one voice. And we brought together the BPF, the RICS and the IPF 
to do that. And that led to the creation of the uh, Property Industry Alliance, this sort of overarching body. And yes, REITs were uh, a part of that. And whether they'd been successful or not, others to judge. I think uh, um, timing wasn't brilliant just before the the GFC, of course. Uh, And maybe there aren't enough listed REITs that are truly um, operating in in the style that we anticipated. There are many that have the the label but aren't necessarily truly REITs as we we envisage they would be. But I think that coming together of the industry was equally important. And uh, although it hasn't been as successful as I would have hoped uh, and anticipated during COVID, we don't seem to have had the traction with government, you would hope, versus uh, the occupiers, for example. It's the only way you can function, uh, certainly with Westminster and Whitehall. And going back to Liz... That's why she was such a fantastic CEO, because she understood how Westminster and Whitehall worked. And uh, that, I think, was probably the even more important consequences of of the REIT uh, discussion. You see opportunities where other investors or banks may not. One of our favourite examples of this was a story that Stephen Cohen told us about AEG's decision to invest in the Millennium Dome. Now, of course, the O2 Arena. We were just at the start of building AEG into what it is now. Really, almost all of our operations were in Los Angeles, California, but we did have some small operations in London, and they were truly small. It was an ice hockey team, and they played out of an old banana storage shed that was along the Thames River. But the feeling was, after building one of the most successful out-of-the-box build-outs, our arena in Los Angeles, we concluded concluded that London would be a good place for a next modern arena. And Ian and his team were helpful to us as we looked at the process. We looked at a number of places and came upon this place called the Millennium Dome, which of course at the time had its own problems. And a number of banks were both scratching their head as to who this AEG was. And they were also wondering why it would make sense to build an arena. And if so, the Greenwich Peninsula isn't London. And Ian had a very different worldview and was willing to engage with his team in in-depth conversations to understand what we were seeing in the marketplace worldwide, what we saw as demand for him internally to spend capital to get his bank to focus on this. And the notion that you would go finance building an arena in the Millennium Dome, which had its own problems. It was an expenditure of internal capital to get his team on board. And then it was an expenditure of real capital. And then Credit Suisse ended up being one of the anchor sponsors as well. And I will I will remind people that the evening before we opened the Millennium Dome, uh, there were newspaper articles in the popular press in London saying it was all a fraud. The Americans had pulled the wool over the Brits' eyes. And when the doors open tomorrow, there will be nothing under the tent. It's a very long-winded way of saying that Ian took real risk. uh, And it was his reputation on the line to help us get that through. And it paid off massive dividends. It paid off not only internally, but also externally as the UK and European market realized that his group really 
they were leaders and looking at things from a different perspective. And for the record, the O2 has been the most popular arena of its kind in the world since the day it opened its doors. It's a great asset. Uh, but actually, was there risk or not? I mean, if you believe that London is the global capital city, as I do, if you believe that the infrastructure we had then in terms of venues was... Uh, if not Victorian, Edwardian. Uh, it was the Albert Hall and Earl's Court and places. And uh, uh, my other passion next to sport is music. So if I'm not at a sporting event, I'm normally at a concert. And so maybe there was a bit of selfishness in, in, in some of this. But actually, all you had to do was meet Phil Anschutz. I mean, I've been so lucky throughout my career to meet some of the uh, absolute visionaries of our industry. Um yeah, unfortunately, they, we seem to be losing them by the day. Um, Jerry Hines over the last couple of days, what a wonderful man. Tony Pidgeley, yeah, uh, Phil is still alive and kicking and many may be so for many years. But the vision he had, I mean, to have a man of, of that influence uh, come over to London. And actually, I remember him getting in taxis, using the, uh, uh, the Docklands Railway, uh, and exploring exactly how long it takes to get to somewhere which most people thought, and they were probably right at the time, wasn't physically connected to the rest of London. And, you know, very much hands-on, but to have that vision. So, yeah, there was a, the, was there a risk? Well, we took some financial risk because we underwrote certain uh, uh, transactions, but I had no doubt about its success, and I do remember that opening night. It was Bon Jovi. Uh, they were fantastic. We We sat there just looking at this edifice that had been built under the tent and it goes from strength to strength uh, now in terms of a destination and uh, um, as it's on uh, the East Enders titles every night uh, of the week uh, you can't deny it's now part of London. I hope to God they opened with living on a prayer and you had a, a moment of indeed we were living on a prayer. Risk is a, is a funny thing I mean the only time I suppose I, I I've always taken a risk on people uh, and I had a view on that. Uh, you know, if you believe in people, then back them. Uh, I've tried to identify organisations at an early stage. I was very lucky uh, to meet uh, Mark Dixon. He walked in off the street when we were at NatWest, coming back from Brussels, and said, I've got this idea. And we ran with it, and uh, NatWest had just been taken over by Bankers Trust, and that was the first time I'd had the ability through the organisation to commit capital. And within six weeks of that transaction, we wrote a cheque for $100 million, split it with Roger Orff, one of your former interviewees, and Roger and I went on the board of this visionary uh, as Mark created Regis. Now, we all know Regis has had its ups and downs. But again, it's just about backing the people. And you meet people like that. Uh, I remember first meeting Nick Porter when he started Unite, you know, really the, the founding father of student accommodation and others of that similar ilk. And so the risks I've taken have often been more on people, ideas, and companies and organisations that have a vision. If you were 25 again, how would you make yourself stand out in today's market? I'd probably practice my left foot kicking as much as I did my right foot kicking at 25 is the answer. It's all um, about balance. It's all about balance. Um <laughs> It's difficult. We, I remember we used to have a phrase at, at Credit Suisse when I was heavily involved in graduate recruitment, which was fit in but stand out. So there's got to be room for the individual. Um, and that's important. We just don't want clones of each other. Um, 
but it's yeah you know, I would turn go back full circle to where we started it's all about relationships and that's why I feel particularly um saddened I suppose for the, the younger uh, members of the community, particularly the business community today, those going to university, this is Freshers' Week this week. I don't know how you how you have Freshers' Week and socially distanced uh, rules in the same sentence. Um, we have our analysts starting, as I said earlier. They've been on this two weeks induction program from home, and that's you know you really want to metaphorically put your arms around them, encourage them, be there to answer questions, you know, be help and guiding. We'd be taking them out for a coffee or a drink and getting to know them, making them feel part of it. Um, so putting the, the health crisis and the issues that that brings at the moment, and we all hope it's only temporary, that hopefully you know, they will not be uh, you know, uh, nervous about coming forward and asking the stupid question. You know, uh, make the call. Um, I had a uh, conversation with uh, a young analyst uh, about a year ago. I remember it vividly because it showed, said more about me than them in terms of age. I, I asked the question, have you spoken to so-and-so about such a transaction? He said, well, I sent them an email. The answer was no. I said, why didn't you phone them? He said, well, the answer would have been the same. I said, you're absolutely right. It probably would have been the same. But you would have found out why. You would have found out what they'd like to do. Was it something specific to this deal? Was it a more generic issue? Was it something strategic? Was it timing? You'll find out what else we can do to help. You'll probably find out a little bit about the individual. You'll arrange to have a cup of coffee with them. You'll get to know them. Because in 10 to 20 years' time, you two are going to be running this industry. That's how you build relationships. And, you know, and I know networking is, for some, you know, uh, uh, an unnecessary evil and people think it's just you know, uh, very uh, superficial. But it's the fundamental basis of how we do business. You have to develop a relationship with someone so they trust you, and then you can work with them and then repeat, repeat, repeat what we said earlier in, in the conversation about you know, how you develop a business. So fitting in but standing out and, and talking about standing out, we spoke to Ben Lambert, the founder and chairman of Eastall Secured. So, listeners, this makes him Ian's boss. Ian Marcus, consider this your annual performance review, live and on air, just between you, me and the listeners at home. The most important thing that Ian has done, as far as I'm concerned, is join Eastall. <laughs> I know that sounds corny, but having the pleasure of having Ian as part of this company is making an incredible difference in terms of our growth because he's just that kind of guy and he makes that kind of contribution and is that willing to give you his point of view every time you're going to make an important decision. Having him on board as part of the company has enhanced our performance without question. That's probably the most important thing of lesson because he doesn't let me down. He's always consistent. He's always got a point of view. He's incredibly willing to give you his point of view, even though it may entail saying something about something that, you know, may not particularly fit with what I think or somebody else in the management track, because he is part of management, but he's also enough of an outsider that we can call upon him for independent thinking. So I have nothing but the highest regard. And I'm not just saying that because I'm on the phone with you, but I want you to know that I would be somehow finding somebody to hear my point of view with regard to the caliber and the quality of the man, because he is very, 
very special. I think it might be time to ask for a pay rise. <laughs> ben, ben is a, just a wonderful, wonderful human being. Um, <clears throat> as I say, you talk about risks. Um, I literally got a call from New York, uh, Ben's assistant, saying, Mr Lambert's in London, he'd like to meet you. And I still, to this day... No one will tell me, you know, whether he had a long list, where I was on that list, why, etc. Um, I think there were 12 on the list, I, well, I found out. <laughs> and I was number eight and you, a half. You, you, were, you were the first. OK. <laughs> so Ben invited me for a coffee at his hotel. We had an hour, which I will remember uh, forever. Uh, and we, we we could have gone on forever. We You know, you know when you when a chemistry just works and it was just... And the vision the man had, I talked earlier about people with vision. Yeah, this is a man who invented real estate investment banking in 1967 when most of your listeners either weren't around or were in short trousers. And he had this, this ideal to bring together two parallel universes of real estate and capital markets to create a real estate investment bank. As I say, he all but invented the term. And they were hugely successful in the US and wanted to bring that model to Europe um, primarily because their clients were coming to Europe. You know, there were these small companies like Blackstone and Starwood and Lone Star and Brookfield that were coming over and, and were encouraging Eastall to come with them. But um, real estate is a local business, uh, as, you, as you know. The capital may be global. And therefore, Ben's vision of how to, to develop the business uh, was really interesting to me. And his timing, uh, you need a bit of luck, but I think it was Gary Player who said, the more you practice, the luckier you get. Um, the timing was interesting because then, and probably still to a certain extent now, the global investment banks in Europe don't consider real estate to be um, a core business. You know, one of the risks, as I say, I took in, in uh, perpetuating that within the banks I worked. And the, the property advisors then... Um, had a unique knowledge of real estate, but you know, as soon as you started talking about cost of capital, use of leverage to your average chartered surveyor, with all due respect, um, it wasn't something they were as comfortable with. Now, I will say the, the advisors have all upped their game considerably, and I would put some of the, the reason for that of Eastill's arrival. So the timing was good, and Ben just had a vision, and he, uh, his comment is true about my commentary, because I'm not an employee. And it's tremendously refreshing when you can go to a board meeting or whatever, uh, 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 an off-site as we have once a year, and you're able to speak without any uh, fear of the consequences. He can't promote me. Um, he can't fire me. Well, I suppose he can because I'm not an employee. Uh, and therefore I'm, I'm able, hopefully in a considered, constructive and professional way, to say it as I see it. And... Whoever you are, no matter how confident, confident and comfortable you feel with your position, others would be slightly more reticent, maybe. Although if you met some of my partners at Eastall, you see they're not uh, uh, shy and retiring, uh, that's for sure. Um, so it's, it's an amazingly um, uh, in, inspirational role to have and watch this organisation grow from nothing in Europe 10 years ago to now nearly 100 people uh, and as of today, you know, literally as of today, because we had a call earlier, 130 transactions in process in, in Europe. And that's all because of Ben's vision. And uh, he is a sheer pleasure uh, to spend time with. And uh, um, the organisation has just gone from strength to strength. 
Well, judging by the call I had with him, Ben Lambert won't be firing you anytime soon. Ian Marcus, Maverick, thank you very much indeed. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Emily. Since we recorded this podcast, we are delighted to announce that Ian has been awarded an OBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours List in recognition of his outstanding contribution to the real estate industry and wider economy. Many congratulations, Ian, and wishing you all the best for many more successful years to come. Desert Island Risks is brought to you by Bohill Partners, the leading executive search firm in the private markets industry. For more information on this podcast or Bowhill Partners, feel free to visit our website at www.bowhillpartners.com or our Instagram page at Desert Island Risks.